My global IQ is 109. I don't know if you're like some authors that quickly check the Amazon uh, listing every hour when the book first comes out. I try not to, to be honest. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you where you are. Um, in fiction, you are Kindle number one, audio number two, hardback number three. So I think you're in good shape with thrillers and will certainly be at number one like all of your books have, have always opened. I'd like to begin our conversation this way and to ask, when you were in college, was your intent when you were at um, California State University in Fresno, was your intent then to be a foreign correspondent? Uh, definitely. Um, I just always wanted to work overseas. I studied political science. I really focused on Russia and had dreams of going to Moscow and, and working there. And But always in the back of my mind, the plan was to write novels. And I became a journalist so that I could become a novelist. I know that might sound a little strange, but all of my literary heroes um, were journalists, uh, whether it's Hemingway or Graham Greene. Um, and I thought for me, that was the, 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 the best route to go. So I studied journalism uh, to learn the craft of writing. Um, I was a po political science double major. Both of those ma majors allowed me to take a lot of uh, other classes, um, you know, in, outside my core curriculum. So I studied a lot of political science and English. Um, and then I, I, I went to graduate school and, and studied international relations. Um, I didn't finish my graduate degree. It's like my one failing in life. I got the, the job I wanted. I got a job at UPI in San Francisco. And within a year, I was working on the foreign desk in Washington. And a year after that, I was uh, living in Cairo and working as a foreign correspondent. So I didn't make it to Moscow. I didn't finish my uh, my graduate degree, but otherwise it worked out okay. What years were you in Cairo? I was in Cairo from 86 to 88. I lived actually in two places simultaneously. So I was based in Cairo um, and the Persian Gulf in Bahrain and bounced back between the two as necessary. Now, one of the things that I learned about reading some of your background is that you really are committed to writing during a certain part of the year. You, you, your books come out almost every July. Um, so what is the writing cycle for you? Well, they come out every July. They come out every, um, the second Tuesday of every July has been my pub date since The Messenger. Um, and I guess the short answer is that I work really every day um, uh, until the book is, is finished. Um, I mean, Labor Day is sort of the starting point, um, but somewhere in here, there it is. I have, I have you know, 60 pages of the next book. Um, I generally like to, um, to get going as quickly as possible on the new book. It helps me put the other book to bed, I don't sit and think about it and, and, and sit and read the, the, the book and wish that I had done this a little differently or that a little differently. The best cure for me to get over a, a book is to start a new book. Um, and so the day after I finished the corrections on um, 
uh, on the order, uh, I started a new manuscript. Um, and, and generally, when I get into, you know, as I like to describe it, clear air at the end of a book where I can, I, I know exactly what I have to write, I know exactly how the story is going to end, part of my brain automatically starts working on the next book. Um, and when, when that stops, that, that'll cause me, it'll give me a little bit of worry that, that, um, that maybe I can't do this any longer. But I, I uh, invariably, once I get a book totally in hand, I start writing another book simultaneously. Um, so I, I do as much work as I can. Summer um, is generally really busy with promotion. This is different, obviously. Um, I've, I've been doing it all from right here. Um, no touring, no live events, very unsettling. Um, and hopefully next summer will be better. I'm not so sure about that. Um, but so, so Labor Day is the true start date. Um, and then once that, that's, I work every single day, seven days a week. And my hand in is, is April 1st. There's not a lot of time. So when you made the transition from journalist to author, how did you go about doing that? Um, because you, you, you didn't get an agent. You know, <laughs> could you do that today? Um, no, I, I, I sold my books uh, off the slush pile is what they're it's affectionately known as in the publishing industry, unsolicited manuscripts. Um, and was very fortunate in that um, it was read at, at a, a couple of houses right away. There was interest in the, the manuscript right away. Once one house is interested in a book, another house gets interested in a book and boom, 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 boom. And, and within a couple of weeks, actually, I had my first offers. Now, I know the answer to this because I have experienced it, but I'm sure some people who may not have had the great opportunity to read some of your books, they wonder, do they need to start with Gabriel Allon one, or can they just start midstream and sort of catch up? Um, the short answer is no, they all stand alone. Um, but, you know, I, I make sure that I include enough backstory, enough personal detail, enough explanation of the interpersonal relationships between the characters so that each book stands alone and can be read cold. Um, by the same token, I am I consciously write for two audiences. Um, one is the, the, the cold reader, and I do get new readers every single year. My my sales numbers, you know, clearly show that. Uh, so I write for that reader, um, as well as uh, you know, the reader who has read every single book. I do know that that um, readers reread the series in preparation for a new book. Uh, so I can't overload that person with too much uh, uh, backstory and, and and description. But I do have to make sure that there's enough for the cold reader. So I, I kind of split the difference and, and write it in a way that um, uh, a new reader can understand what's going on and an old reader won't be bored. Yeah, some people who write in your genre, it's all action and, and that plot but what makes your book so fascinating is the historical context as well as the current events. And how do you balance the current events versus the, the, the plot that always needs to be there as, as well? Well, I think that um, 
look, all of us now are so plugged in all the time. Um, we consume news constantly. Your average reader of, a, of, an, uh, of an espionage novel or foreign intrigue novel or a Gabriel Lawn novel, I think is a very, is a sophisticated reader. Um, and they know what's going on in the world. Um, and if my world is, um, you know, so far removed from that, or the situations, um, you know, so far out of sync, just wouldn't wouldn't ring true. Um, and so I, I like to think that that Gabriel Lon is is sort of this world one or two steps removed. He definitely inhabits his own universe. Not everything that happens in this universe happens in his universe, or exactly the same order. Um, but they're they're pretty close. Um, and I find the world an endlessly fascinating place. Who wouldn't? I mean, look at what we're in the middle of right now. Um, and as I, one of the things that, that inspired this book, and I hope comes through in this book, um, is that we are in incredibly unstable times. Um, and we don't know what the future holds in terms of, of frankly, our own political system. And I would argue uh, political systems, even in Western Europe. Um, and, and the instability of those systems um, has just quadrupled thanks to the, the, the coronavirus pandemic. We have no idea yet the impact that this is going to have on, on, on the politics uh, of, of what we loosely call the Atlantic Alliance. Um, I, I can tell you that this part of this book is set in Germany. It deals with the rise of the far right in Germany and it deals with a very specific issue and that is the degree to which extremists, and I'm talking about neo-Nazis, okay, not just guys who lean, lean a little to the right, but neo-Nazi German intelligence services, um, they are gearing up for um, a, a fight uh, day X, as they call it, um, and they expect that the pandemic is going to produce day X, and they're getting ready for it. And one of your characters in this book is Peter Vandermeer from Amsterdam, and as you write, <laughs> promised to push out all Muslims by 2025 with a ridiculous comb-over who buys hairspray by the case. Were you thinking of anyone in particular when you said that? No, I mean, I, I, I depict a, uh, a conference of European far-right leaders, um, and these kinds of conferences go on um, all the time. Um, the various far-right extremists gather, and, and Peter Vandermeer is, is clearly modeled on Gert Wilders, the Dutch extremist who has a very distinctive uh, silver bouffant hairdo that he wears. Let's talk, and, and you'll be the master of this because I don't want to spo spoil any of our, uh, the pleasure for any of our readers, but one of the key parts, of course, is the conclave. A pope is, is, is murdered. Be careful, be careful. And you go into such detail. So help us understand, um, is there any basis in history of some of the things that happened 
in the book. And I'm thinking particular of what was called the Vatty Leaks. And I'll, I'll let you weave around. What was called, the, 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 the word dropped out. The, the came, the one word dropped out, I'm so sorry. The, the Vatty, the, when the Vatty, was it called the Vatty Leaks, Vac Leaks um, a few years ago in 2013? Oh, Vatty Leaks? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I depict a, um, it's in the flap copy, so um, I'm not giving away any any secrets, but um, a uh, malign, um, evil group of, of men and uh, uh, religious order are going to try to seize control of the Catholic Church at the conclave. Um, and um, I'll, I'll do a little tiny bit of a spoiler, but it deals with money. Um, and so... Um, were popes in previous ages, uh, did they acquire the papacy um, uh, through acts of, of, of bribery and payment and other means? Um, abso absolutely. Um, and the Vatty Leaks is the name that was given to a, a, a scandal a few years at the Vatican. It's a broad-ranging scandal that, um, that uh, dealt with money and sex and, and, and malfeasance at the Vatican Bank. Um, and, uh, it, it is safe to say that, that, um, um, that the Vatican is, is a far from clean place. Uh, it is also, it's not an overstatement to say that the church is in, is in real moral and financial trouble right now. Um, all stemming, uh, from, you know, the absolute horror and abject failure of the clerical abuse scandal. Um, we know that here in, in this country, I think it's, we're up to 19 uh, dioceses and orders that have had to declare bankruptcy because of, of, of payouts uh, to victims. Um, and I am told by people uh, uh, close to the papacy and insiders at the Vatican that the church is about this close, but the Holy See, not the church, but the Holy See uh, is about this close to being bankrupt. Um, and so this is um, these are these are dangerous times for the church, uh, truly. And now I've read, I guess, about four of your books, and hope to finish Moscow Rules to, tonight. One greed, of my favorites. Greed always plays such a role in your books. Sure. Is is sure. that how you view human nature? Um, look, um, greed, the lust for money. Um, is is a is a driving that are going on in the world today. Um, if you look at Russia, for example, as a book I'm working on now that deals with this topic, it, it is a kleptocracy. It is a gangster state. That's that's whole reason for being. It's the whole existence of the ruling uh, clique and Putin and hit the men around him is to extract money from that from Russia for their personal gain. Period. He is probably the richest man in the world. So some estimates, you know, a fortune of $200 billion. That's a lot of money for someone that dangerous to have. Um, so look, so greed is, is a, a motivation uh, that I've used for my villains time and time again. And I think it, it, it's, it's accurate. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast, 
and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Well, in a prior interview, you said of Vladimir Putin that he's testing us. Mm. Uh, you said, uh, or Lenin's infamous maxim, probe with bayonets. If you encounter mush, proceed. If you encounter steel, withdraw. Correct. Thus far, Putin has only encountered mush, at least in the last few years with the United States. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Um, and he's going to keep pushing and pushing. He encountered, he tested and tested and tested. He encountered mush over and over and over again. And he felt so emboldened that he reached in and, and intervened in our election. And we're going to go round and round and round to the extent to which that he influenced the outcome of the election. Um, but he certainly played a huge role um, in, in um, helping uh, candidate Donald Trump, his preferred candidate. Um, and did, yes, we sanctioned him. We sanctioned some people close to him. Um, but I don't think that he was um, deterred in his ultimate mission, which is, um, and this, I, I, I sort of feel like I stumbled upon it first um, as a fiction writer, uh, but now we've, we've come around to realize um, that his ultimate mission is the destruction of the, the, the Atlantic Alliance and Western democracy. Um, that is clearly his goal. Um, we now know that there's this unit, unit 29155. I've been writing about something like unit 29155 for, for a couple of years. We now know that they have a unit of, of assassins and, and operatives that are running loose in, in the West, uh, carrying out missions. Um, this is a long-term plan. Uh, it's called, they refer to it as hybrid warfare. It's cyber operations, it's hacking. They are constantly at us. They are at war with us in a, using a form of hybrid warfare. Well, let's get back to the art world because so many of your books do touch on art theft. And, um, you know, I, I had no idea what a big business is, it is. <laughs> so, you know, to tell our viewers just, you know, how extensive it is. And then I'm curious about the profile of a buyer. Uh, in terms of of uh, of, of thefts, um, I, I believe we had a theft um, recently in Amsterdam at, at the Van Gogh Museum. Um, um, and there's, you know, experts disagree on what happens with these things and um, these stolen paintings, whether they become used as sort of underworld cash, whether they're just trophy hunters. Um, I believe that that there is a, a, a brisk market for, for stolen art um, then, and that a certain type of collector does acquire um, stolen art, even though it can't be sold again on the open market. Um, and the other thing that I'm, I'm fascinated by and, and um, I think is more troubling is, is forgery and the amount of forged material that uh, is finding its way into the bloodstream of the art world. And London in the last couple of years was, was rocked by a forgery scandal. Um, and 
there have been some estimates of the, the sort of the percentage of the art that hangs on museum walls that is not genuine and not painted by the person whose signature might be in the bottom. Um, and and it, it's pretty scary. Now, Gabriel has the joy of going on vacations, but they always seem to be interrupted, whether it's his honeymoon or just a, a, a summer vacation. Do you have that problem in your family? I, I sort of was speculating that maybe because of your your wife's job as a journalist that you're on vacation and then suddenly she says, ah, oh, I got to go cover the story and you're left to go to the finest restaurant. Yeah, I cannot tell you how many vacations have been interrupted by work in this in this family. Uh, and I think that's true of of anyone who works in the news business or people who are involved in the corporate world. It's it's hard to it, to uh, tune out and and really be uh, enjoy a, a real time away. Um, that's certainly been true of our life. So um, having Gabriel's vacation interrupted by by the death of a pope seemed very natural to me. So I'm wondering how COVID nineteen has changed um, your routine, uh, both at obviously at, at home in Washington and Florida, but also in your writing, because you, you, you do travel so much and do your own research. Yeah. Um, well, the, the short answer is that um, as, a, as a writer, and I've heard other writers say this, I think Michael Connolly said the same thing when he was interviewed for his new book, we tend to be a little socially distant in any case. Uh, and and um, for me, I write very close to my deadlines. Uh, I try very hard not to get the flu in a typical winter. Um, make sure I get my flu shot. Keep to myself. Don't don't um, um, you know circulate broadly during those last couple of months of winter when I'm really on deadline. So that part of it wasn't difficult for me. Um, I guess what was hard for me um, was this watching every morning before I before I started my work. You know, I, I stop in the kitchen, have a cup of coffee, turn on the television and stand there with, you know, tears running down my face that, you know, a thousand people had died uh, the previous day. Um, part of my, uh, not part of it, most of the novel is set in Italy. It It's set um, at end of November and early December. Uh, of 2019-ish, uh, right on the eve of all this happening. Um, and so I knew that that the people um, that I was writing about and, and the Italians around them were, would be soon be fighting for their lives, uh, trying to, to, to survive this terrible outbreak that happened in Italy. Um, and I was able to foreshadow it in, in the novel. Um, I was able to foreshadow that some countries would, would handle it better than others and some leaders would handle it better than others. Um, but it, it, I sort of put a little cast over the, over the storytelling that some, something bad was about to happen. Um, and look, people who followed these issues, myself included, knew that at some point we were going to have a novel coronavirus um, uh, or, or novel virus, uh, that, we, that we were going to have another pandemic. Um, it was inevitable. Um, and that, that it finally happened and that, that we are so 
so unprepared for it and mishandling it so badly. I know mean, you guys are in, in Texas tonight. It's I'm I'm heartbroken. I, I can't I can't believe that Texas is in the condition that it's in after you know watching what we were going through in in New York and and here in Washington, Florida. I can't I cannot go back to Florida right now. It's it's the worldwide epicenter uh, of of the outbreak. Um, it should not have happened. Um, should not have, have have reopened as quickly as you did. They did, um, and you as well. Um, so I hope we can get our act together um, and that um, hopefully next summer I can come there um, instead of being here, but I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Absolutely, and it's astonishing to think that we cannot go to Europe. As we right, I, I had hoped to finish the novel in Rome um, and go to, go to uh, uh, Italy and write it there. And I obviously canceled my trip when coronavirus was raging there. Now the irony is I can't go there. I'm not welcome. We as Americans are not welcome uh, in, in Italy or the rest of, of the EU uh, because we have a pandemic that's out of control here. And they managed to crush the curve and, and keep it down. Um, look, every, every country that's that's started to ease restrictions and reopen has seen an an increase and it's it's um will they be able to manage it um will germany which did a job well a good job early will they be able to manage it israel did a fantastic job as soon as they loosened restrictions it started popping up again this is going to be a long 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 struggle well, you know, as I was reading, as especially the order, I could imagine you almost like a choreographer, sort of plotting where everybody was going, especially as, again, I don't want to, spoiler alert, as certain people were racing uh, uh, to the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> do you actually walk those streets and take notes? Is that how you do it? Because it's I, so I have spent a lot of time around the Vatican. Um, I have been in the Sistine Chapel alone. I've opened the little door on the stove where they burn the ballots. Um, I've been in the crying room where the Pope goes to change his clothes and uh, uh, the new Pope, I should say. Um, so I have a very clear image of, of that room and what it's like and 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 um, we now have the advantage of of, of having uh, live coverage of the of the first hour of a conclave with, as the cardinals come in and swear their oaths, and so we we can really see what it looks like now. Um, so I utilized all kinds of different sources to 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 get that right. Um, in terms of the the process itself, by which votes are are cast and counted, that is written in in the constitution of the church um so that that wasn't really difficult to, to to get that right it's literally in black and white step by step how you cast a ballot um how the ballots are counted and recounted um and, and to to read the rules for uh, uh by which a conclave were to be conducted really shows you the degree to which these men do not trust each other. <laughs> there are so many steps in place to prevent the theft of a conclave. It's astonishing to think um, that men of, the, of religion need so many little rules to prevent uh, uh, corruption, but the uh, Catholic Church 
uh, knew full well the kind of ambition that, that walks in that chapel um, every few years. So let's touch on the characters a, a bit more. Um, you know, how do you, in a sense, channel um, your characters' voices? Uh, because you know, it's now been several years since you've written about Archbishop uh, Luigi Donati. Yeah. Um, and, and he's matured as your views have changed. Is there um, some similarity? I, I guess that, that um, as I've tried to explain to my wife many, many times when, when I get distracted or, or um, deep in thought and, and um, you know, I spend much more time in, in that universe than I do in this one. I spend much more, many more hours with them every day than I do um, with my my family. I'm down here, you know, eight hours a day working at, at the bare minimum. Um, and so I see them very clearly. I hear their voices very clearly. Uh, oftentimes I sort of feel like a, a stenographer more than a writer. When I set a scene um, and, and start that, start them at the first line, it usually sort of writes itself. And I'm sitting just listening and taking dictation. That's when the magic happens. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating. I just, I see it, I see and hear them very clearly. Does that make it even more difficult for you to move away from Alon? Uh, no, no. Uh, what makes it difficult for me to move away from Alon is that it would be uh, publishing uh, malfeasance. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I would love um, to um, write a, either a second series, which is impossible for me because I have to write a Gabriel book every year or write a, a standalone. And eventually I will. Um, but, you know, Gabriel's sales at, at 20 books continue to, to increase. Um, and that's generally not the way it works at, with a mature series. They, they start to, to tail off a little bit. Um, and so there's that. And I just love writing about the guy. You know, he inhabits two really interesting worlds. One, the world of intelligence and counterterrorism, and another, the art world. I mean, what other um, spy character could could um, you know be the the star of the Black Widow? Uh, you know, a, a story about um, catching an ISIS master terrorist, and then and then drop him into the this book, the Order at the Vatican. No, no other character could do that, um, and that is the magic of Gabriel Lott, and that's why he is never boring to write about uh, because I I just switch it up all the time. Um, maybe someday stories that I'm doing. Maybe. I mean, even in form, this one was quite different and it's quite different in form and tone than the previous book. We have a, a comment and question from Rose. She says, Gabriel Allen has to be one of the very best characters ever created. Is there a part of him based on someone you have met? Um, no, I would say that that um, he was cut from whole cloth, and I really mean that. I did not model him on anyone. I, I've never met um, um, the real Gabriel Alon, um, but I have met and spent time around and 
and some of my very close friends um, uh, do do work like Gabriel uh, uh, did. Um, uh, and but no, Gabriel himself is is a, totally mine. Um, he was not inspired by anyone. That said, um, as I've gotten to know people who work for the Mossad, um, I am struck by how many of them are artists, sculptors, pianists. Um, there's a lot of artistic talent among people who work at the Mossad. I don't know if it's the, if it's just sort of the the gene pool or the type of person that they tend to recruit. Um, but it is not unusual for um, both analytical people uh, and field personnel to, that to have um, musical or, or artistic talent. Well, I want to thank you, one, for writing such a wonderful book and for thank the you. and and Thank the you. Spirits. I appreciate that. Thank and you. And I look Very forward nice. to filling in about another 12 or 13 books that I have the, the pleasure of reading. And uh, Okay, 12 or 13 for you. I'm not sure I got 12 or 13 in me, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you do have a ways to go. My condolences. Oh, it'll be a wonderful way to spend the summer and shelter in place. 